0: I'll just have to grow a couple of inches to speak. Um, My name's Tim. I'm an addict. Uh, Thank you for inviting me here today. Um, uh, Just so you know, my home group. hmm? Okay. Um, Just so you know, my home group. If you want to know where to find me, or if you want to know how to avoid me, you don't need to decide right now. You have half an hour. (laughs) Um, is the Brick Lane Big Book Study, which is an AA group on at uh, 6 p.m. Uh, every Saturday in Brick Lane. Um, uh, I'm a member of AA. I've attended numerous other fellowships over the years, uh, including a lot of Al-Anon. Um, you've heard all about the problem, so I'm not going to bang on about the problem, but just in case anyone missed that session earlier today, um, my problem is really simple. Um, I do stuff that makes me feel better right now, regardless of the consequences. And I'll do that till it's pretty much killing me. Um, I can't moderate and I can't stop. And it's as simple as that. I can't moderate and I can't stop on my own. So I need you. Um, Anything which fixes my internal condition can become a problem for me, which is why I've had to attend more than one fellowship. And one by one, those other problems have seen patient improvement rather than instant miracles. With the substances, it was an instant miracle when I surrendered. With everything else, it's patient improvement. And as a friend of mine says, um, it's no good standing in a bucket trying to lift yourself up in the air by pulling at the handles. So I can't solve my own problem. And beating myself up because I can't solve my own problem doesn't help anyone. So that needs to stop. Guilt needs to stop. I'm either guilty or I'm powerless. Whenever I'm feeling guilty or ashamed, it's because I'm not recognizing my powerlessness. Um, I'm going to say a little bit about um, how I came to a solution. Um, I joined AA. um, Well, I I first started stopping substances in 1990. um, it took three years before I put down the substances altogether. My sobriety date is the 24th of July, 1993. Um, I'd been going to meetings of various fellowships for about six months and finding myself periodically drunk. And what was going on was I knew at a deep level, I was going to have to give it all up at some point, but why now? (laughs) So, you wait until things get bad enough, and then you go for a little blowout. And you turn back up the next day, all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed with those insincere, sincere tears of remorse and you get all that lovely attention from people. I love attention. (laughs) It's almost as good as drinking. Um, The last time I used, I ended up being arrested and run over and all sorts of stuff, like within half an hour, Of starting because I get bored and I get restless when I'm when I'm out of it I need if there is no drama happening I will create it and I realized I need a solution and I need a solution now because I can't afford another slip if I have another slip it may kill me And I remember phoning up Sue, who at the time had 30 years of sobriety, and I said, because I'd read it in the book, um, for me to drink is to die. Uh, And she said, if you're lucky. And there are fates worse than death. Um, And that's when I surrendered. And what surrender looked like from the outside was quiet resignation. I was quietly resigned to going to meetings for the rest of my life. I was quietly resigned to doing whatever I was told and the fight had gone out of me. And I was just willing to follow directions. And um, how do you pick a sponsor and what do you do with one once you've picked one? Those are two separate questions. Um, The first question, how do you pick a sponsor? I picked someone who was cheerful and functional. I don't know how much, frankly, he did know about the program, but I wanted what he had because I was not cheerful and I was not functioning on any meaningful level. I'd never really worked unless you call, um, uh, having your little sticky fingers in the till working. Um, I, I'd never held down a, a meaningful job. I'd never been of any use to man or beast. I, I was entirely self-centered. I was concerned only with making an impression whatever the price. Um, I, I couldn't function in the world, and I knew it, so I needed to find someone who could. I wasn't interested in spiritual growth or spiritual insights or family of origin work, or any of the other things which were on the menu, and maybe still are on the menu, that, if relevant, could come later. What I was interested in was finding a way to live so that I didn't have to kill myself because I couldn't stand the pain. If you can show me a way to live that it's not so painful that I don't have to kill myself today, then that's fine. So I set the bar really low. (laughs) if i don't have to drink and i don't have to die today the whole thing is a success Um, because people can get really demanding like i'm not happy now and i'm you know you sponsees who are six months sober six months clean like amazed that everything hasn't been reconstructed that they're not now the you know ceo of shell (laughs) and uh, and then you know well i don't believe I don't believe in the higher power. What's God doing for me? Um, If you set the sights really low, you'll be constantly amazed and constantly grateful. So I set the sights really low. Uh, At any given point in recovery uh, in my sobriety, um, being sober and clean is sufficient. And there are times when that's the only only thing that can be said in my favor. But over the course of my sobriety and recovery, a lot more is necessary merely in order to stay sober. And that's why the program is necessary. In my first year, um, I saw people around me, uh, left, right, and center, relapsing and dying. Uh, And they were the ones who weren't doing what it says on the tin. Maybe that's a little bit judgmental, but that was my observation. It's not to condemn those people, but, you know, watching the people that did the work, what happened to them, the people that didn't do the work, what happened to them. And I can tell you after 25 years, that conclusion still holds true. And uh, this is a marathon, not a sprint. And the single biggest factor I believe in determining someone's success in the world of recovery doesn't matter which the fellowship is, is having a home group. How do you pick a home group? Um, it's the group. Well, I pick the one with the with the strongest content during the course of the meeting, um, the highest hit rate of cheerful, functional people and a group where they go for dinner afterwards. Um, In my first year, I don't know what your drinking or using was like, but uh, mine was such that I didn't exactly have a social life left over to go back to. If you hadn't offered me a social life in the world of recovery, then I, I would have just gone back to my cold, damp little room on my own night after night because there was literally no one else there in my life. Um, My life is a lot bigger now, but the core of it is my home group. And it's often the case that I will, during the course of the week, slide away from spiritual principles, slide away from the practices of the steps, and I go to my home group, and there are people who are six months sober or clean, a year, two years, absolutely on fire with it, and it reinvigorates me. And so I need everyone who is in that group. Um, if you join a group where everyone is doing the steps and trying to abide by the traditions, um, you end up doing the same because who wants to be left out? It's tedious seeing other people make spectacular progress while you're sitting, sitting on your behind waiting for um, God to slide a hot dog under your door. The easiest thing to do, is very hard to motivate yourself in recovery. I, I can't do it. I need a group of people who provide my motivation f- for those times when my motivation flags. So I found some really strong people in recovery in my first year, the people who are 20, 30, 40 years sober, and I stuck close to them. Um, what did I do with my sponsor when I got him? Um, Oh, I also, as I say, continue to talk to lots of people, not just my sponsors, my new higher power and secretive with everyone else won't work in my experience. I needed to be open with a bunch of people who were sober for decades who were reading off the same hymn sheet when it came to the solution. Um, when I was a few months sober, uh, maybe a couple of months, um, someone had come up to me in a one of those intense meetings, not one of the cheerful ones, one of the intense ones. And I shared, and he said to me, well, um, uh, you've got a lot of problems other than alcohol and drugs, so um, particularly your family and your upbringing, so I don't think that you're going to stay sober by Christmas unless you do some really serious work around, I don't know what around means, around your family. And I was terrified because um, I'd been in therapy a number of times. I've been pushed in the direction of helping professionals a number of times. And every time I went to therapy, I came out thinking that uh, I had three times as many problems as when I went in. Now other people, I've, I've got friends who have amazing experiences of therapy, but that was my experience. And I went to Maureen, who was a friend of my sponsor. She was sober 20 years at the time. She's sober. Well, she stayed sober the whole time. So she's 40 odd years now, which is illustrative. So whatever she was saying then, I tend to believe it in retrospect because she's still sober now. Lots of those other people weren't. But she's still sober now. She said, well, she said are there are children here. Um, but she, she said a word which means what comes out of the back end of a horse. And she said, if you get, if you get uh, and keep your sponsor, if you work the steps, if you get a home group, if you do tea at the home group, if you go for fellowship afterwards and don't take yourself so seriously, then you'll stay sober by, by Christmas and beyond. And I was so relieved. I mean, the first bloke was right that lots of work needed to be done around my family. But the work that needed to be done was I needed to forgive them for being who they were and I needed to make amends to them. That was the work. Um, I was whipped through the steps straight out of the big book um, in my first year. Um, I made amends very quickly. Like I think I was making amends within about nine months. Um, th- there wasn't a huge list. My amends weren't elegant. They weren't neat and tidy. They weren't all packaged up. It, you can hear lots of wonderful sets of tapes, a very eloquent and long-winded Americans talking at great length about the big book and the steps. And it's wonderful. Um, but I did a very rough and ready version in the first year. And uh, I think my life got 90% better in that first year. The remaining 10% has taken another 24 years. And is still, we're still working on little corners here and there, I have an occasional problem with anger. I mean, barely worth mentioning. But, you know, there are some, there are some things which haven't quite gone. So, um, but that very rough and ready, no-nonsense approach to the steps in my first year was exactly what I wanted, um, exactly what I needed. Uh, I needed to keep it very simple. My step four was around five pages. I mean, big book practitioners would would have to cross themselves if they saw it. It does not comply with any known worksheets. (laughs) But it was honestly done under the direction of a smart, sensible, practical sponsor who was well-meaning and very active in service and in helping other people in his life. And it worked so this is not about technicality and minutiae and is it four columns is it five columns is it a twofold illness is it a threefold illness are you always recovering or do you ever can you call yourself recovered like all of these technical questions we hadn't heard of them in 1993 and yet we stayed sober and didn't need to fall out so what are those arguments really about that's the interesting thing. Like, why do you care so much? Anyway. Um, and I, I say that as someone that, you know, had like a, a good six-year, a six-year diversion into lots of theoretical points about recovery and addiction. Um, so, you know, I've, I've, I've been on both sides of all of those arguments, and who knows. Um, but to get concrete about what I've learned since that first year. Um, I want to run through steps 2 through 11 um, in the next 10 minutes, which is one minute per step, which I think is enough. Um, In step 2, let's leave God out of this for a moment. Um, The point about step 2 is there are other people who've had the same problem as me, who found a solution, and who know how they did it. They weren't struck peaceful by a bolt of peaceful lightning. They took certain actions which brought about a specific result in a replicable way. It can be replicated across, you know, uh, they can point to the list of sponsees who've done the same thing and it's worked. And uh, after all these years, I still need the same thing. Uh, I've got people actually all around the world I can call in a crisis to say, what, okay, this is what's going on. I've learned how to tell a sponsor what's going on in under 25 seconds. Um, nothing is ever as complicated as I used to think it was. Situations can be presented very simply. And I present the situation and they, you know, people who are 30, 40, 50 years sober say, I've been exactly there, this is what you do. Unfortunately, the, the answer is usually, you're just gonna have to trust God and get on with it one day at a time. But anyway, you know, I've, I've just spoiled it for you. I've told you what the old timers say. Um, trust God is my sponsor's great insight of the week. Um, I and mean, what do we pay these people for? Um, <clears throat> by the way, I love the raffle prizes. You can tell what everyone had for Christmas. Um, <laughs> I have reverence for nothing except my my higher power and my sponsor, um, so sorry about that. Uh, step two is all about believing it's going to work for me because I can see that it works for you. Um, there's a writer called CS Lewis that says, with, with God, there's only so far you can go with reason. You have to shift to experience if you want to find out whether this is what he says if you want to find out whether the cat is in the linen cupboard you have to go and look reason will not tell you and it's like that with a relationship with a higher power i had to go and get one to understand it i wasn't going to understand it thinking about it sitting on sitting on my sofa with all of my opinions about it and an experience i'd not yet had so step two was all about watching out for people who'd succeeded in recovery and saying if it works for them it'll work for me because I'm not so substantially different that I know I've got problems which are bigger than the program really? No. So step three I'm gonna have to um, trust the program rather than my perception. Whenever I'm worried I'm listening to my worries Whenever I'm resentful or frightened, I'm listening to my resentments and my fears, which I made up all by myself, and then decided to believe. No one planted the resentments or the fears in me. I mean, sometimes people offer, offer them to you, but I'm the one that decides to take them. Um, when my sponsor says, trust God, and a bit of me is frightened, really? What I'm doing is saying, I'm right, my sponsor's wrong. I'm right, and the rest of AA is wrong. so that has to go. Who am I to say that I have the last word on anything? So step three is about taking myself with a pinch of salt and trusting how do you trust you trust? Well, what does that mean? You trust like when you know you're a child and there's a situation and um, a parent says, don't worry, it'll all be fine. I've got this under control and you relax. I mean, everyone has had that experience once. Um, Even if it's a doctor who says, oh, take these tablets, you'll be fine. And you're bouncing out of the doctor's surgery even though you still have all the symptoms because you trust. So everyone's capable of trust. It's just a matter of applying what one has learnt in one area to the whole shooting match. Plus step three means get on with the rest of the steps. In step four, I get to do three inventories. The first one is the resentment inventory where I discover there's only one lesson from the first part of the resentment inventory, which is the reason I'm resentful is I have a plan for the universe, and the universe is not playing ball. I've I've never had an emotional upset which is not flowing from that simple idea. You are not behaving. The world is not behaving. The universe is not behaving. She's not behaving. I Or I can't even behave myself. So I'm resenting myself. The only solution, therefore, is to drop the plans and accept everything the way it is as being the way it is meant to be, whatever that means to you. Um, I wish there were a shortcut, but there isn't. That's the only way I found. And then to realize that the life, this is the so-called fourth column on page 67, the, um, the reason my life looks the way it is, is because I built it that way. All the people that have treated me badly as an adult, I have invited voluntarily into my life. So who's the dummy now? I was the one that picked them. Um, I've learned in the Resentment Inventory that I am 100% responsible for my attitudes, my beliefs, my values my thoughts my actions and ultimately therefore my feelings Um, my sponsor says if you're not enjoying recovery you're not doing it right and i enjoy recovery and i enjoy my life i enjoy my job Um, i enjoy my home i enjoy my other half i enjoy my family who are all still nuts all of them none of them have got better none of them are in, in recovery we don't even know what the right fellowship is for most of them, but they need something. <laughs> They're not getting it, but I've learned how to be with people who aren't very well and have a good time anyway, because my emotional experience and response to you is my responsibility, not yours. So I needed to stop blaming. Step five, I, got, I, I get on a regular basis to tell a whole bunch of people exactly what's going on without glossing it, uh, without soft peddling it, without having to explain a whole load of things first. I just tell the truth. And if you tell the truth enough to the right people over a long period of time, it stops having any sting. And all the stuff I was terrified of telling people were things I'd done or thought they weren't who I am in the same way that a carpenter using tools is not the tools that he is using. He's the user of the tools. Any character defect I have is a tool that I'm using. It's not who I am, which is why I have no compunction at all about telling you that my major character defects are arrogance and contempt and ill temper and control and punishment and worry and there's a list. I literally don't have the time to, uh, but I have no problem telling you about those things because they're not who I am. They're tools that I've been using and I'm responsible for putting them down because there are alternatives. Six and seven. Um, Sometimes people get very elaborate around six and seven. I used to and I don't anymore. Basically, do I want to stay like it, pointing at my steps four and five? And the answer should be pretty simple. If you have any doubt about that, and also it's a package deal, because all of my character defects flow from having me as the center and main objective of my life. And the truth is, according to the contract of step three, the center and main objective of my life needs to be being there for other people, contributing constructively to the lives of other people without complaint or, or, or gloom or criticism. Um, steps eight and nine, I have approached everyone I've ever consciously harmed and done my utmost to make amends to them all. Some of those relationships aren't fixed. Uh, But it's not my job to fix them. It's my job to do my utmost to clear the way for the higher power enabling a change to take place. It's not my job to fix them. Uh, And I've done my side of it. And my resentment against a lot of people dropped when my guilt went. My guilt went when I realized there was nothing more I could do. And most of my resentment was actually my guilt projected outwards onto other people. Because it's obviously someone's fault. And I don't want it to be mine. So it must be yours. And that was going on at a subconscious level. So if you're still resenting people and you don't know why, it could be because you owe them amends. Just a a possibility. Um, I was at work at 6 AM this morning. um, And I worked for three hours. And my mother is 89. And uh, she's really very unwell. we realized quite how unwell she was this morning. Uh, we went over, we spent a couple of hours there, and I came straight here, and we're going to go back later on today. My, my other half is looking after her. Um, in steps 10, 11, and 12, my job is to say to my higher power, what do you want me to do? With no concern for myself. Um, the reason character defects need to go is because they get in the way. I've got a lot on my schedule today. I've got a lot on my plate in my life, and I have not got time for my own BS. I haven't got the energy for it anymore. And ultimately, the best way to change, I've discovered, is fill your life with opportunities for service. And you won't want to act out left, right, and center because you haven't got time to clear up the mess and get done what you need to get done. So I filled my life with opportunities for service, and that has made that has rendered me more peaceful, more cheerful, and more kind than uh, I could have uh, imagined um, 25 years ago. It was not getting my own way; never made me happy. That's what the whole thing is based on. Um, trying to help other people get their own way peculiarly has worked, and. I learned that from you lot, so thanks for listening.